Good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. Good to all see you scattered about on this little hill here. Good to be with you guys, whether you're in your living rooms, kitchen, in bed still. Maybe you're going to be watching this later tonight. Who knows? But I'm just excited to be together. I'm excited that we are making room for this, for the for the presence of God. And as Paul was leading us in this last song, The Lion and the Lamb, some of these songs get a little bit trite. We sing them over and over again and they lose their meaning. But just so you know, that song was rooted and written out of, I don't know the writer, but I'm assuming this because I know the scripture, Revelation 4. And that's something that I just want to sit with a little bit because it struck me as this amazing paradox that our God is. So let's prayerfully close our eyes, whether you're in person or at home, and imagine this. I'm going to go to Revelation 4, actually. I wasn't planning on this, but it's just too good. Revelation 5, Then I saw the right hand of him who sat on the throne. In the right hand of him who sat on the throne, a scroll with writing on it on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. And I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. But then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The story goes on to talk about how this lamb then was worshipped, but we hear a lion. We hear about a lion and then we look and we see a lamb. And so Jesus... In this chaotic, tumultuous time where we've got all sorts of voices to try to listen to, trying to figure out who to pay attention to. In this time with all sorts of opinions just floating around like, like heavy weights on our backs. We look to you, Jesus, the one who is both the lion and the lamb. The conquering king who conquered by shedding his own blood. That's a king that I'll follow. That's a master that I'll serve. That's a teacher that I'll listen to. One who gives life through his own death. And so we ask you this morning just to continue speaking your words of truth, your words of life. Like the Apostle Peter, we just say, Lord, to whom else can we go? For you have the words of eternal life. So we've been in this sermon series, friends, for about a month now. This is our fourth week in this sermon series. In this sermon series called For the Sake of the Gospel. For the sake of the gospel. And it's a really actually important sermon series. It's I've been kind of... Uh, Sarah, could you go back and er, go to the van and grab my water? I've been, a little, I've been a little sad that this sermon series is coming during COVID because it's such an impactful sermon series. It's such a formative and shaping sermon series. But as I look at you here this morning is that I know you guys are online. I know that really I think there's no better time than right now for a sermon series like this where we're talking about why we as elders have discerned and decided it is time for us to drop the evangelical label. So this sermon series is telling you guys as a church, we as elders have decided to drop the evangelical label and now this sermon series is also us making the case for why we've decided this. As I said last week, this is not a sermon series. This is not a decision that we've made lightly. It's not a decision that we made just because we want to be the cool, hip, trendy church. It's not a decision that we've made because we feel like um, 
we just want to uh, be one step ahead of the game or we want to make waves or we love challenging things. It's not at all that. Thank you. Go pack. It's not at all that, actually. We've just looked, we've been looking at this cultural moment we find ourselves in and we feel like the, the evangelical label has become more of a barrier to the gospel rather than a bridge to the gospel. I'm going to say that again because that is everything for why we're doing this sermon series and it's everything for why we are dropping the evangelical label. It seems like we, are, we have arrived now at a point in history where the evangelical label is more of a barrier to the gospel than it is a bridge to the gospel. Are you with me? And if that's the case, if we can, if we can sit together and a majority of us re, uh, say, yes, actually it seems like the evangelical label is more of a barrier than a bridge to the gospel, to me, this is a no-brainer. Because our fidelity and our faithfulness must always lie in the gospel rather than a tradition of man. Our faithfulness must always be to Christ and him crucified over and above any tradition of man that we've aligned ourselves with or any, any pattern, any, any movement, any network, any denomination that's always secondary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we're airing this out a little bit together and using this hopefully to be a moment of reflection and transformation for us as a church family. See, nothing, I, I've said this before, nothing's really going to change about Brew City Church, and that's mostly true. Our theology will not change. How we do church probably won't change, but that's always on the chopping block, just so you know. But here's what I'm hoping. I am hoping that we, this, these words that we talk about, that we, that we throw about and fling about within evangelicalism and within the Protestant church, words like revival, words like renewal, words like awakening or reawakening, that's what I'm hoping this moment produces for Brew City Church, is a reawakening to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the true, beautiful, unbridled gospel of Jesus Christ. I hope this sermon series is a catalyst for us to take the gospel a little bit more seriously as a people. To say if this is true, maybe we should drop the label, label evangelical, but maybe we shouldn't stop there. Are you with me? Maybe. What if we could see a new wave of evangelism, a new wave of people coming alive, of us coming alive to the Christ of the gospels so much that we awaken other people to the beauty of Jesus and the gospels along with it, where maybe we could be a church family that becomes a refuge for spiritual refugees. Maybe we could become this place that's, that's helping the church recover the lost beauty of the gospel because it's gotten so covered in the muck of religion. And I know, friends, that as I say this, some of us, some of us are like, Praise the Lord, I'm here because you're doing the sermon series. I'm with you. I'm all in. There's no reluctance in me whatsoever. I wish you would have done this five years ago. And then some of us are like, okay, it makes sense. Sounds about right. Doesn't move the needle very much for me. And then some of us are mourning a little bit. Some of us are grieving a little bit. Because this is the movement that we've been formed and shaped in spiritually. This is the tradition that we've come alive to Christ and we found our families coming alive to Christ in really beautiful ways, actually. Let's not be so, what is it, binary, dualistic to say that all bad has come from the evangelical tradition. That's just not true. As a matter of fact, I have evangelical brothers and sisters 
who are continuing to be evangelical. And I want to figure out ways to partner in the gospel more and more. So this is in no way shutting ourselves off to evangelicalism. This is just saying we as a people no longer choose to identify ourselves as that. And it's not because of the good evangelicals who are around us. It's because of the loudmouths that we're going to hear about today. Today is the, today, this is the most challenging message of the sermon series for me. I've gone back and forth on whether I even wanted to preach this sermon. I've been convinced by a few powerful ladies in my life. I'm looking at you two right now. That we need to actually speak out and name some of the things that we're walking away from and why we're doing this. But I don't want this to become a habit for us. So what we've done in this sermon series, we, we started out with the gospel. If you didn't hear that first sermon of the sermon series, please go back. Not only because it's so pivotal for this sermon series, because it's so foundational. It's, it's, the, it's the, the foundation that we're building on from the sermon series and for this idea of dropping the evangelical label. But it's also just what we, who and what we are as a church for the sake of the gospel. We just talked about how basically the gospel is this message of hope and life and renewal and redemption for all people, for every single person alive. We talked about this scandalous reality and the scandal that went along with it is just because this is scriptural stuff we've been talking through. We started in Genesis 12 and then we went to John 1, then we went to John 3, then we went to Ephesians 1. In all of these verses speaking to this reality that the God who is love is compelled to seek and save that which is lost, which is all things. That the gospel means that God is bringing all things in heaven and on earth un into unity under one head and that is Christ. And that is not theoretical, that is not hypothetical, that is truth. That is the reality of the gospel, that God is bringing all things and all people back together. And this is a word that our culture needs. This is a word that my soul needs. This is a word that we need as a church. This is a word that the people of God need. And it's a word that our culture in this world needs right now, that God is bringing all things in heaven and on earth, all people into unity under Christ. And if our movement doesn't match up with that word and that gospel, we need to consider leaving it. That was week one. Then in week two, we looked at some data and statistics and talked about just what is the reality of the way what we find in the evangelical church? What is the way unchurched people look at the evangelical church? Because for many people, that is the way people, the unchurched people look at Christ. And we saw these numbers that the evangelical movement was ascending, ascending, ascending until the mid-90s when it was just this heyday of evangelicalism and megachurches everywhere. Many of us were a part of that world. And then all of a sudden it started going down and what we saw was the nuns, these people with no religious affiliation, started exploding. And we, we live in this moment right now, 2018 was the first year, where the largest religious affiliation in the United States of America is no religious affiliation. And it's going opposite directions. If the trend continues, those nuns are gonna explode and, and be so su such the biggest demographic, even over evangelicalism, over mainline Protestantism, over Catholicism, over all of Christianity. And I think the church needs to do something about that. I've been on, we've been on a mission for the last year and a half to two years to, to think and to ask the spirit, how do we reach out to the nuns? How do we reach out to this generation that says, looks at the church and says, thanks, but no thanks? How do we do that? If we are Christians, if we are followers of Jesus and the gospel, we must ask these kind of questions. They're not an option unless we want to become this little 
irrelevant religious tribe that's off in the, in, in the corner, has nothing to say into the present moment, into culture, and has no, nothing of value to bring. If you want to do that, you can, you can do that if you want. I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in being a person of the gospel and being part of a church, a people, a family of God who's saying we take the gospel seriously and we want to obsess about how do we reach the unreached among us? How do we reach this culture, this generation? Because the trends are going in a very scary direction for the church friends. We saw how unchurched millennials, young people, when asked how they see the church, the evangelical church, they see the church as the evangelical church is overwhelmingly against other people groups. They see the evangelical church as uh, overwhelmingly judgmental. They see the evangelical church as overwhelmingly hypocritical. And more than anything, 91% of unchurched millennials see the evangelical church as homophobic and against gay people. And I just want to say as a follower of Christ, I'm not okay with any of those statistics. I know none of us are, whether we're here in the park or watching online. The question is, what do we do about it? And so last week, we looked at faithful people within church history. We've got 2,000 years of history to look at. Whenever we make a decision or come to it, we feel like we're at a fork in the road when maybe our, our tradition in the, the church movement that we've been a part of might not be following the way of the gospel, we've got a decision to make. And whenever you find yourself at a moment like that, what's really, really healthy to do is not to just focus on our cultural moment that we find ourselves in, but to look back in the last 2,000 years and say, what did people similar to us do in moments like this throughout church history? I think that's a really wise way to make decisions, to inform our process. And so we thought about in the fourth century, how people called the desert fathers and mothers when Christianity went from the margins being persecuted but growing like wildfire, when, when the Roman Empire co-opted the Christian movement and made it the civil religion of the day, legalized it, and made it the religion of the Roman Empire, what happened was the Christian witness was compromised. The church was compromised. When, it, when the church cozies up to political power, things always go badly. Always. And the desert fathers and mothers saw this and they literally ran to the desert from the cities, from the cathedrals, from the churches. They ran to the desert because they would not be a part of a corrupted civil religion of the empire. And I'd like to think, I'll bet you any money, that as they were doing this, their family members and their, the people in their churches thought they were nuts. That was probably a bold decision to make, to say, I can't, eat, I can't be a part of this so much to the extent that I'm going to run away from this city where I see all this corrupted religion, and I'm going to run to the desert and make my home there. I'm going to sell everything so that I can maintain faithfulness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's an extreme decision to make. But when you look back in church history, friends, which side do we save? maintain fidelity and faithfulness to the gospel? Is it the corrupted civil religion of the empire? Actually, it was the desert fathers and mothers who saved this tradition for us. We look back in the Reformation yet another time when, when we see people who are taking the scriptures seriously, people who are taking the gospel seriously say, I cannot agree with this any longer. I cannot say yes to it. I cannot be part of this tradition any longer. And it was uncomfortable. 500 years later, 503 years later, we're still feeling the, the effects of it. But as a Protestant, as a, someone who identifies as a Protestant, I thank God for the reformers. I thank God for people who are faithful enough to the scriptures and the gospel to say, we need to do something different here. And so this morning, I want to, I said last week that we have two weeks of history. Last week was big church history. This morning, we're going to reflect a little bit on the time we have left together. I feel like it's getting late. What time is it? 10.48. All right. 
we're going to think for a little bit about the history of the evangelical movement that we've been a part of. Just to frame it up a little bit. The evangelical movement really started in the 18th century. In the 18th and 19th century in America, in, in the UK and in America is when the evangelical movement really started. There were some Arabians as well in, in Germany, but really you see this explosion of evangelicalism where evangelicalism began as a stream of four different traditions, primarily. Now you people, you guys who have taken church history, you can fact check me and do all the things, but we find evangelicalism was a, a, a combination, kind of a, a, a religious mongrel of sorts of pietism, puritanism, presbyterianism, and moravianism. I'm looking at you church history guys to see if you're giving me a head shake, yes or no, but pietism, puritanism, presbyterianism, and moravianism. And it was a product of the first and second great awakening. Evangelicalism was built on these legendary preachers named Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the Wesley brothers, John and Charles Wesley, who gave birth to Methodism, which I think might just be the best of evangelicalism. But we find this movement in America, particularly in the 18th century and the 19th century, was exploding. It was unrivaled. It was the main church in the States in the 18th and 19th century. And then a couple of things changed and switched. Well, when we think about evangelicalism, there's four, four foundational elements that, that make evangelicalism what it is. And it's really difficult to actually quantify and to, to get data on it because it's such a, it is really just kind of a, a conglomeration of a number of streams that turned into its own thing, but they're all loosely affiliated. So it's hard. There's no church documents. There's no evangelicalism 101. You just have to parse through history and look at what evangelicalism was founded on and what mattered. And there was a, there's a man named David Bebbington who, who created what's called the Bebbington's Quadrilateral. And it speaks to the four, four foundations of evangelicalism. The first one is biblicism. If you grew up a good evangelical or you spent any time in the evangelical church, you know that the evangelical church prides itself on the authority of scripture that it gives. The authority and primacy of the scriptures. And I say yes and amen to that. Now, it's gone in different ways and it's given into biblical literalism, which I do not say yes and amen to. And then there's all sorts of things within that. But the authority of scriptures is central to evangelicalism. So that's biblicism. The next one is what they call crucicism. The, the, the primacy of Christ and him crucified and giving us life is major, major part of evangelicalism, a foundation of evangelicalism. Biblicism, crucicism, that the cross of Christ is everything for us. Now, I would say that evangelicalism has gone a little bit too far in only seeing the cross of Christ and in, instead of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ and even the ascension of Christ. But I say yes and amen to the cross of Jesus Christ being everything about who we are. I, I say yes and amen to that. Then you have biblicism, crucicism, then you have conversionism. This idea that evangelicals have championed that, John, that Jesus in John 3 as he was talking to Nicodemus and said, if you want to experience life in the kingdom, you must be born again. And evangelicals have taken that and ran with that throughout the centuries. That you need to actually be converted, say yes to this kingdom, to say yes to I want to follow you, Jesus. This is core to being evangelical. All of us are familiar with this. And the last one, Bebbington identified as called activism. That evangelicalism, particularly with the Wesleys, began with this strong value on social justice this strong value on actually making your faith should actually change the way you live your sh your faith should change the way you see the world that's why we see so many evangelicals in the 17th and 18th, 18th century there were many many evangelical abolitionists there were many many evangelical christians who were responsible for ending the slave trade because they took their faith seriously and they believed that if we if we center ourselves in the scriptures that should actually change the way we live which should change the culture around us it's beautiful 
If that was still evangelicalism, we would not be having this conversation. But what we found was in the late 19th in early 20th century, a couple of things happened that changed evangelicalism that were in ways that we're still dealing with now. I hope you're not glossing over. I see some interesting looks, some history buffs. Two things happened primarily, historians would say, that changed the evangelical movement. The first thing that happened was just very practical. You had a wave of people emigrating to the United States who were not evangelical. Lutherans, Catholics, Jewish people started emigrating to the United States and all of a sudden people had way more choices religiously and Christian than they had before. It's probably why M Milwaukee is not considered a bastion of evangelicalism. Because we had a bunch of German Lutherans and Polish Catholics who emigrated to, the, to Milwaukee, made their homes here, and that's why you see a litter of church steeples around our city rather than these big sprawling evangelical campuses. So that changed and all of a sudden evangelicalism wasn't unrivaled in the United States of America. But here's the biggest change is that from primarily from Germany, but from Europe came this academic movement in the early 20th century. Where academics started, they, they, they started using history and historical critical method to approach the scriptures. And they started chinking little bits in the armor out of this idea of biblical literalism that maybe everything that we've taken literally for all this time, that maybe that's not the best way to take the scriptures. And evangelicals got weak at the knees. What also happened around this time in the early 20th century is evolutionism began being more widely accepted. Academics just took, began to take evolutionism as fact and then evangelicals got really scared. And what happened then is during the course of 1910 through 1915, there was, a, there was a group of about 90 essays that were put together and called what? The Fundamentals. The Fundamentals, 90 essays that were put together, written by different church leaders, but they basically doubled down on biblical literalism. And that this, this was a huge moment in the history of the evangelical church, where the church said, we are not going to trust academia, we are not going to trust history, we're not going to trust science. We're going to double down on biblical literalism, which gave rise to fundamentalism, which changed the way, the course and the trajectory of evangelicalism, where you have academia and science going one way, and you have evangelicalism going another way, and we are living, friends. We are living in a pandemic where so many evangelicals don't believe in science. Where you could go back a hundred years ago to where that began. A distrust. Animosity. You have to know your history so you don't repeat it, right? When you think about when we think about evangelicalism and the history of it, I could go into so many areas, so many things, and I've been studying evangelicalism for the last several months. And there's a couple of things that, be, that are predominant throughout the, let's say the 20th century into the 21st century. Some, some subheadings that you could say kind of co-opted the evangelical movements, and I'm not gonna go really deep into all of them, but things like militarism, an overly militaristic, Faith, faith in military, faith in, in a strong military, faith in politics. Polit evangelicalism has married itself to politics in huge, obvious ways. Militarism, politics, patriarchal, patriarchal evangelicalism has turned into a turn slowly but quickly from, the, from that, those moments in the 20s into the 50s, 60s, 70s, and especially until today, it's turned into a patriarchal movement. Let me just give you a few, a few data points. See, when you, I use a word like militaristic, that doesn't seem so major. It seems like kind of secondary, but it's so formative to a movement like evangelicalism. I'm just going to give you, I'm going to become Professor Randy now. 
Let's start in the Vietnam War in the 60s. In 1968, as the Vietnam War was winding on, mainline clergy strongly condemned war crimes and, and called into question the morality of the war. This is when the, the Vietnam War was about four years in, and, it, and protest is happening. Mainline clergy is actually condemning the war, particularly condemning war crimes. And while mainline clergy, mainline meaning Lutheran, Catholic, Episcopalian, Anglican, Presbyterian, while mainline clergy were calling for an end to war, evangelical and fundamentalist leaders were saying things like this. This is a direct quote. The infallible Bible gives men the right to participate in such conflicts, and that with the knowledge that God was on their side, believers should know that if they fell in battle, they would be received into the highest heaven. This is not some jihadi writing. This is an evangelical leader from the late 60s saying that when an American died in battle, they would be received into the highest heaven. Another extremely prominent evangelical labor, labor, leader said this, the U.S. soldier in Vietnam remained a living testimony to Christianity and to old-fashioned patriotism. They were defenders of Americanism, and the American soldier was, quote, a champion for Christ. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't honor our veterans among us. If you're a veteran, thank you for your service. I'm actually in awe of living in a self, such a self-sacrificial way. I think it's beautiful in many ways. But I am concerned when a church movement calls soldiers with guns and bullets and bombs champions for Christ. If that's not concerning, We've gone wrong, and we, we, for those of us who say we follow this nonviolent savior, the Prince of Peace, when the young army lieutenant, William Cauley, faced trial for the murder of some 500 Vietnamese men, women, and children, civilians at the My Lai Massacre, some of you know this history, none other than Billy Graham said, there were, so there were 500 men, women, and children slaughtered, civilians, and when asked about it, Billy Graham said, I have never heard of a war where innocent people are not killed. I love Billy Graham. But what I've found is even men like Billy Graham are not exempt from this overly militaristic, patriarchal, political movement that's become the evangelical church. That's the Vietnam War. Let's fast forward to the Gulf War. That's more recent for most of us. In 2002, evangelical Christians were the biggest supporters of the Iraq War, of the, of the war in Iraq of any people group in the United States. The, the biggest people group who was supportive of the war in Iraq were evangelical Christians of any people group in the United States of America. 87% of evangelicals supported the preemptive war in Iraq compared to 70% of mainline Protestants and only 59% secular Americans. Unchurched people, 59% of them supported the war in Iraq, 87% of evangelicals did. Now, I don't, I'm not, I don't care if you supported the war then or if you do now or whatever that looks like. I'm just saying we need to notice these trends. When the followers of the gospel, the, the, the people who say they follow the Prince of Peace, are overwhelmingly the biggest warmongers in our culture, we have to ask if this is the way of Christ. A very prominent evangelical pastor wrote a 2004 sermon that he titled, God is Pro-War. These are facts. I'm not telling you names because I don't want to do that, but I have names. In 2007, evangelical Christians continue to register far more negative views on, of Muslims than any other people group in the United States of America. Evangelical Christians re registered more negative views of Muslims than any other people group in the United States of America. A two, and this is all Pew Research Group. I'm going to list off a few things that the Pew Research Group has found during the last decade. I'm not going to give you numbers because we don't have time for it, but just listen to this. A 2009 survey revealed that evangelicals 
were significantly more supportive of torture against suspected terrorists than the rest of the country. 62% of evangelicals said that torture could be justified often or sometimes, while 46% of mainline Christians agreed, and only 40% of unchurched people approved of torture. This is, I'm just telling you friends, I'm not saying this to be political at all. This is reality. More than any other religious demographic in America, white evangelicals, according to the Pew Research Group, support preemptive war, condone the use of torture, and favor the death penalty. White evangelicals have more negative views toward immigrants than any other religious group in the United States of America. 68% of white evangelicals have bad views on immigrants in the United States, more than any other religious group. What does that, how does that reflect on our savior? I'm sorry, the 68% number was this. 68% of evangelical Christians do not think the U.S. has a responsibility to accept refugees. More than half of white evangelicals think that a majority, this is crazy now, more than half of white evangelicals think that a majority non-white U.S. population would be a negative development. Did you get that? Did I say it right? We're heading towards a non-white majority United States of America, and more than half of white evangelicals think that would be a bad thing. White evangelicals are considerably more likely than others to believe that Islam encourages violence, to, to refuse to see Islam as part of mainstream American society, and to perceive a natural conflict between Islam and democracy. And at the same time, get this, at the same time, white evangelicals believe that Christians in America face more discrimination than Muslims. I did not make any of this up. Christ white evangelicals believe that Christians in America face more discrimination than Muslims. Now here's the part that I didn't want to bring. It's quotes from some particular evangelical leaders, but again, I'm saying this, this is gross, and I wanna wash ourselves from it. But we, I, I do believe, actually, that we have to name some things to talk about why we're walking away from this movement, why we're dropping this label, why we feel like it might be more of a barrier to the gospel than a bridge. Here's some just direct quotes from evangelical leaders throughout the last several decades. And these are the ones that the unchurched people are listening to, friends. They're not your good, your good Bible-believing evangelicals down the road, it's these leaders that people are listening to, that the unchurched are listening to. This is why we're, we're dropping the label. Here's a quote. This is a very prominent evangelical leader. We have allowed the enemy to come into our churches. I was talking to some Christians, and they were talking about how they invited these gay children to come into their home and come into the church, and that they were wanting to influence them. And I thought to myself, they're not going to influence those kids. Those kids are going to influence those parents' children. What happens is we think we can fight by smiling and being real nice and loving. We have to understand who the enemy is and what he wants to do. He wants to devour our homes. He wants to devour this nation. And we have to be so careful who we let our kids hang out with. We have, oh man. We have to be so careful who we let our kids hang out with. And here we go. We have to be so careful who we let into our churches. Thank you, Karen. Did you get the gist of that quote? We can't let the gays into our evangelical churches because they might influence our children. We can't let the gays into our evangelical churches because they might, they might change us. They might rub off on us. This is a evangelical leader, friends. Here's some more. Let me give you a couple more. You've got to kill the terrorists before the killing stops. And I am for the president. Chase them all over the world. If it takes 10 years, blow them all away in the name of the Lord. Next quote. AIDS, this is a, these are prominent evangelical leaders. AIDS is the wrath of a just God against homosexuals. To oppose it would be like an Israelite jumping into the Red Sea to save one of Pharaoh's charioteers. AIDS is not just God's punishment for homosexuals, it is God's punishment on, for the society that tolerates homosexuals. Another quote, the atomic bomb is a marvelous gift that was given to our country by a wise God. Another quote, 
This is a quote from a very prominent evangelical leader recently. Some of you, God hates you. Some of you, God is sick of you. God is frustrated with you. God is wearied by you. God has suffered long enough with you. He doesn't think you're cute. He doesn't think it's funny. He doesn't think your excuse is meritorious. He doesn't care if you compare yourself to someone worse than you. He hates them too. God hates right now, personally, personally objectively hates some of you. An evangelical leader following the September 11th attack said this in regard to the bomb to the to the planes flying into the World Trade Center I really believe that the pagans and the abortionists and the feminists and the gays and the lesbians who are actively trying to make that an alternative lifestyle the ACLU people for the American way all of them who have tried to secularize America I point the, I point the finger in their face and say you helped this happen I've got two more for you. Another one. The feminist agenda is not about equal rights for women. It is about a socialist, anti-family political movement that encourages women to leave their husbands, kill their children, practice witchcraft, destroy capitalism, and become lesbians. Now, it's, it's funny, but this was a person. I'm not going to say her name. It was a woman, and it was a person who shaped a lot of modern evangelicalism. There are reasons that these, these statistics are a reality. Last one. Just like what Nazi Germany did to the Jews, so liberal America is now doing to evangelical Christians. It's no different. It is the same thing. It is happening all over again. It is the Democratic Congress, the liberal-based media, and the homosexuals who want to destroy the Christians. Wholesale abuse and discrimination, here we go, and the worst bigotry directed toward any group in America today. More terrible than anything suffered by any minority in history. This, the guy who said that, has millions of followers worldwide. Now let me just read some other quotes for you. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Another quote. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And greet, if you greet only your people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Another quote, do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly enough to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Here's another quote. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Which way are we going to align ourselves with? Last one. For Christ's love compels us. For Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all. And therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. And all this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Counting people's sins against them, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so here's the here's the moment we find ourselves in, friends. Which tradition are we going to align ourselves with? Which movement are we going to say yes to? And to are we going to become ministers of and ambassadors for? I've got to tell you, now this is where I'm getting a little angry because I've read those quotes just as much as you heard them and I saw those statistics. I'm getting tired for apologizing for my movement. I'm getting sick of putting an asterisk on saying why I follow Jesus. I've grown tired of feeling like I have to be embarrassed of my movements. See, because I am not embarrassed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am not embarrassed of the way of the kingdom that is life for all people. I will stand with the gospel of Jesus Christ, even if that means making a part and saying, I got to separate myself from the tradition of man that's representing Christ in an absolutely ugly, abhorrent way. We will not stand with it. So as the drizzle starts falling, I thought it was supposed to be a perfect day. <laughs> Turns out friends at home, the joke's on us. We find ourselves at that fork in the road moment. We're just like I said at the end of my sermon last week, I'm hoping that we can be a people who come alive again to the beauty of the gospel. Where I'm hoping that this is the last time I can, I have to say quotes like this and I have to cite statistics like this because now we can be more known for what we're for rather than what we're against because now we can actually walk into the gospel without asterisks and apologies imperfect people broken people but we can actually walk in the way of the gospel in the way of Christ and saying this is who we are and this is what we're for and I'm just wondering, are you with me, friends? Are you? Let's stand and finish our time with worship. Paul, you want to come on up? Abby, you got something? Oh, man, you guys, I love how the Holy Spirit works. Um, I was driving over the home bridge this morning coming over here and the kids are in the car and it was like the spirit of repentance just fell on me and I started crying in the car and I started repenting for dualistic thinking <laughs> and I started repenting that I would choose sinlessness over the love of God that I would choose righteousness over the father's love <laughs> that I would choose justice over the father's love that I would choose theology over the love of Jesus, that I would choose religion, that I would choose my own vain imagination of who God is over his love. And I was praying and crying, and so convicted by the Holy Spirit. We think we've arrived, you guys. <laughs> And I just feel, as Randy was talking, I think that that spirit of repentance that the Lord, 
We can only bring healing, we can only walk in healing when we allow the brokenness to come and admit it. And we've rallied around repenting for what the evangelical church has done to our black brothers and sisters. But we need to repent, right? Like these quotes, they make us uncomfortable. They make me really uncomfortable. I don't like to listen to them. I'd rather avoid it. But that uncomfortableness, that's, it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we need to allow him to convict our hearts. And we need to, it's okay to cry and repent and go, oh, I've chosen other things but the love of Jesus. And as I was coming over the home bridge and crying, and my kids are reading in the back, and it was, it was going on. I felt the Holy Spirit say, come into my harbor. Come and get healing. And it's not just me, it's the church. We're tattered. We've been through a storm and we're tattered. And he's saying, come into my harbor. That which I've broken, I will heal. He is doing the breaking. <laughs> he is breaking things that have set itself up against the knowledge of who he is. He is jealous for our affections, not for our systems, not for our traditions, not for our theology. He is jealous for our love. And it is represented in how we love those around us. And it is uncomfortable. And it takes sacrifice. And it means that we don't get to stand in a place of judgment. It means that we don't get to choose religion over his love. It means we choose his love over and over and over again. That is what he is jealous for. And I think that, man, I think repentance is so fun. <laughs> because we get to say, I want a better way. The way that I've walked in, it's broken. I'm stumbling. And I want to celebrate a better way. So I'm actually going to pray that for us, that we would be people this week that we would cry in repentance. I pray, Holy Spirit, for a, a lamenting week for all of us, <laughs> that we would pray and that we would cry out and would we repent for the ways that we've gone wrong and not chosen love, not chosen the gospel of Christ, but we have chosen the traditions of man. Forgive us, Father. choose your love we choose your gospel even if it makes us uncomfortable and it goes against the way we've grown up we choose you Jesus and your love let's just stand together and worship and then engage in the spirit that engage in this reality that the spirit is drawing us into the spirit is converging let's sing this as a people as a family